right, let's jump into it. I just Googled how many podcasts are on iTunes. And the answer was staggering. About 500,000 podcasts are on iTunes. That's a lot. That's a big number, obviously. But then I thought to myself, how many do I listen to? Eh, About six, six or seven. And of the six or seven podcasts that I have discovered that I like, I asked myself, do I listen to every single episode they do? And the answer is no. I wish I did. I wish there was enough time. There's a term, FOMO, fear of missing out. That's how I feel about podcasts. I have a fear of missing out on the great podcasts out there. So a part of me wants to keep searching and searching for other podcasts, but I think I'm just going to stay in the pocket. I'm going to stay in my comfort zone and realize there's just not enough minutes in the day. I wish there were. I'm a bit of a one-trick pony, though. I'm looking for comics, funny podcasts, or maybe a little bit about sports. That's it. I'm not even sure what genre this is, but I do know this is episode 13 of Here We Go. Great to have you back with me, and I appreciate you tuning in. And if you miss a few, hey, who cares? Go back sometime. Listen to the earlier podcasts. Hopefully, just like anything else, they get better and better and better, but no guarantee today. Today's might be awful. You be the judge. All of the podcasts I've listened to, I notice how they evolve. It's interesting. I look on my phone. I could just read you the same podcasts, same names I've already talked about, but I look at Mark Maron. Think about how his podcast has evolved. WTF. Mark Maron, a stand-up comedian who started off interviewing other comedians, and now the guy has had Barack Obama on the show, Nick Nolte, Sharon Stone, so he's kind of a vehicle for big celebrities and movie stars to promote their work. Not to say it has evolved to the point where it's unlistenable, it's still good, but it's not the same. And that's a good thing. Things should evolve. They should not remain stale, but they should reach a peak. They should reach their prime. So I'm hoping that's where this is going at some point. I've discovered Todd Berry's podcast. I want to recommend that. And it's the same old shit. It's a comedian who interviews other comedians. So you're probably thinking, how many of those do you really need in your life? Because that's what Bobby Lee's Tiger Belly podcast is. A comedian interviewing other comedians. Mark Maron, Pete Holmes, Joe Rogan, Todd Berry, Sebastian Maniscalco has a podcast. Chris D'Elia has a podcast. Bill Burr has a podcast. Dom Herrera has a podcast. They all have podcasts. And this is my fear of missing out, is that there's too many now. And I'm not just saying this as a joke. I actually experience a panicky feeling that I can't get around to all of them. And I don't feel that about any other medium. I don't feel that about TV shows. There's only a few good shows that I like. And if somebody recommends a TV show and says you got to start from the beginning, the answer is, of course not. Of course, I'm not going to just start at the beginning. I've told people I've never seen The Wire. The Wire is apparently one of the greatest shows of all time from HBO. I've never seen it. People say you got to start at the beginning. It's a fine idea, but we all know it'll never happen. Movies, I never have the fear that I have never seen some great movies. There's enough time. But podcasts, the ones that are relevant, the ones that are talking about things in the news right now or happening in the world right now, I feel the need to listen to those right now. So luckily I have a dog because that's when I listen on dog walks. But if I didn't have a dog, I don't even know if I would listen to podcasts. Or would I just sit on the couch with earbuds in? Where are you listening to this right now? I'm curious. Where do you listen to podcasts? Do you put the earbuds in and do chores around the house? Is it when you drive, you have the Bluetooth going? I don't even know why I care. 
It's a weird way to start the show. But I digress. Episode 13. The number 13 could be unlucky. Maybe. We'll see. If this is the shittiest podcast I ever do, I'll just blame it on the number 13. That's another thing I googled. Why is the number 13 considered unlucky? And there's about 10 answers. I won't bore you. Some religious, some mystical, some based in science, but you can look it up on your own. All you know is that 13 is considered unlucky, and most elevators in buildings don't even have a 13th floor. It just goes 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, even though when you're on the 14th floor, you're on the 13th floor. But nobody wants to be on a floor called the 13th floor because we are that superstitious in our society that we believe it's unlucky. Friday the 13th. They say some wild things can happen on Friday the 13th. I guess that's true. If something bad has happened to you on Friday the 13th, it's easy to just point to the date on the calendar and go, boom, there it is. Are we really buying into that one? I buy into a lot of the dumb superstitions, but are we really buying into that? The number 13 being unlucky? As a kid, I did, but I once brought it up to my mom and she said, no, 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 13, that is when young Jewish boys and girls have a bar or bat mitzvah and become adults. So I guess that's viewed as lucky, right? Hey, that's my bar mitzvah age, 13. So I was lucky because I became a man. I was about four foot 11, far from puberty at 13. But I was a man that night. That was a good time for me too. I think I was a full foot shorter than all of my friends and a full two feet shorter than all of the eighth grade girls at that point. There's some great pictures from my bar mitzvah, me hanging out with my friends, these girls who look like they were babysitting me. They look like grown-ass women in formal wear, and I look like a toddler who just showed up on the dance floor. Actually, there is a good story of my bar mitzvah. So the service was in the morning, and isn't that why you tuned in for stories of my bar mitzvah? To hear how I became a man in one day? Lucky number 13, age 13, I became a man. So the service at Road of Shalom, it's in the morning. That is when I pretend to read from the Torah. When I say pretend, I memorize the Hebrew. I wasn't actually reading out of it. I mean, I was moving the stick, which is the Yad, I think, across the Torah, and I was chanting in Hebrew to the congregation, and they're so impressed. But really, I just memorized it all. And then I give a speech, and I do the prayers, and I shake hands with everybody. Relatives fly in from out of town. It's a big deal. And then the way we did it, no party immediately afterwards. Everybody come back later that night for a party. But my life back then, oh, man. I think I peaked early in life because I had a girlfriend that none of my friends knew because I went to sleepaway summer camp in Yosemite in Groveland, and I found me a girlfriend. I snatched me up a girl. And it was a real hot and heavy relationship. I think it was one phone call every two weeks. We were very possessive of one another. I think we saw each other once. But of course, my girlfriend at the time got an invite to my bar mitzvah. My big chance to show her off. My hot girl. Where do you guys see who I'm bringing to my bar mitzvah? I told him. And then when she showed up at the service, she came home with me afterwards And we had about six hours to kill before the party that night at the Holiday Inn, Hotel Motel Holiday Inn. And it was going to be a nice reception, a bunch of friends, a catered dinner, a lot of dancing. But in that interim space, after the service and before the party, that is when she decided to dump me. Of course. This is just like a great rom-com. So that's when she dumps me. Right after the service. You know, she still has to get ready and change at my house. And I'm still going to bring her to the bar mitzvah party. This story is so good. I mean, painful in the moment, but so good now. 
So I get dumped. And my good friend Micah Julius was there as well. And I think he got dumped by his girlfriend, his summer camp girlfriend. Thank you so much for RSVPing yes to this event, ladies. Really appreciate that. So we get dumped. And I remember thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is there any way we could just still pretend we're a couple just for a few hours tonight so I could show off my friends, show my buddies, my lovely blonde girlfriend from Groveland? And I forget if I actually asked that or just had that thought or maybe just decided to do a little pretend in my own head. But it was also a phase of my life where I was learning the guitar and I liked making up songs. I liked making up lyrics. And after I got dumped, I remember just coming into my living room. She was sitting in there and I just started to make up a song called She Fucking Hates Me. And I sang it right to her and she started to cry. To me, I thought it would loosen the mood. I thought it would lighten the mood a little bit. This is a great song. It's called She Fucking Hates Me. And then tears started to well up in her eyes and I realized, oh, these lyrics, they are piercing her soul. But I didn't stop. No, no, no. The song must go on, people. And I'd love to say I remember the lyrics, but hey, I made them up as I went. Oh, what a day. So lucky number 13? Probably not. That sounds unlucky. That whole story sounds kind of unlucky to me. But yes, that's when young Jews become adults. A young boy becomes a man at age 13. All right, as always, because I'm neurotic and I keep myself up at night with too many thoughts, I will now just share some. Just going to share a bunch of thoughts. Let's see what sticks. Uh, I wrote a few down. Uh, This says, only way to enjoy something, don't do it often. And I think this stems from the fact that they always tell you, find a career you love so much that it doesn't feel like work. That might be impossible. It's great advice. Don't get me wrong. I think it's great advice. You need to discover a profession one day when you grow up where you love it so much, it doesn't even feel like work. But it will always feel like work. Because you're doing it every single day. There's an obligation to do it. And there are some incredible jobs out there. I was thinking, if you're a cast member on Saturday Night Live, aren't there some days where you're like, I don't want to do sketch comedy. I don't want to write comedy. If you're on the Golden State Warriors, or if you're in the NBA, are there some nights where you're like, I don't want to play basketball. I kind of just want to sit on my couch. But it's a job. So even the most fun activities that can become professions, they probably don't feel great every single day, which is the beauty of vacations. But I assume everybody who has a job gets stressed out, gets drained, gets exhausted, reaches that point where they're like, no more, I need a day off, even if it's the best job in the world. And that goes for other activities across the board. Eating. What's your favorite food? Like for me, I crave bagels, lox, and cream cheese at least once a week. If I had it every single day, I would reach a point where it's not as enjoyable. Going to a comedy club is so special. I'd probably go four or five times a year. If I went every weekend, I'd get sick of it. There are probably some loopholes in this, like sex. But no, even that. Infrequently means you'll appreciate it more? Hey, just a theory. I don't know. But not doing something often, novelty, it's the spice of life. Then you really start to appreciate something. Working out, working out is a grind. It's grueling. If you're somebody that goes to the gym, do you really enjoy going to the gym? Or do you enjoy leaving the gym knowing that you just accomplished a workout? Isn't that the best part of going to the gym, leaving? But you got to do it. Even meditation. I wouldn't say I enjoy meditation. I have to meditate. I have to do it. So I can roll with the punches of life. 
Isn't that why people meditate? So they can roll with the punches. Life is a bunch of punches. Really? That's the best saying. Roll with the punches. Most people can't roll with punches. Let's break that down literally. Who rolls with the punches? If I knew every day of my life, I would just get punched in the face and punched in the stomach, punched in the balls and punched in the neck, punched in the shoulder, and you just had the idea of, I got to roll with this. Fuck that. You don't have to roll with the punches, but if you meditate, you'll have less intense reactions to all of the punches. So no more literal punches, but figuratively the punches of life. I've noticed that meditation helps. In most facets of life, except for when people don't say hello when I'm walking my dog. If I say, hi there, hey, how are you? And they don't say anything back. I experience three to four seconds of rage, unlike any other scenario or scenario. How do you say that word? Scenario or scenario? A tribe called Quest, they say scenario. If you want to listen to the song, here we go, yo, here we go, yo. So what's so what's so what's the scenario? But I've heard some people say scenario. So it's up to you. But the scenario scenario of somebody who just simply doesn't say hi back, they heard me. Oh, they heard me, and they just have decided, you know what? You're a piece of shit. I'm not going to say hi back to you. In that moment, I honestly feel the need to have a physical confrontation. And then it subsides really quickly. Then it goes away. And does it make me want to never say hello again? No, I can't do that. I can't put the walls up. I'm going to keep saying hello on my walks around the neighborhood. Hi there. Hi there. I said hi. I've actually done that to people. I said hi. God, am I desperate. But going back for a moment, I am teaching a class right now called College and Career Readiness. I'm the teacher of this class. It's a bunch of high school freshmen. So that's 15-year-olds. And I'm teaching them how to find their unique skills and interests and how to really find a path in life where you feel like you're utilizing your strengths in order to find a college that fits you and suits you and a profession that feels right. So you're not just toiling away in the world of job after job after job aimlessly. It's a good class. The idea for the class is great. I think most people, when I tell them I teach that, they go, ooh, I wish that was around when I was in high school. As do I, as do most people. But it has to be taught properly. And there's curriculum. So they have to follow a workbook and a textbook. And there's flaws, of course. There's a lot of improvisation for the teacher to kind of take it in a direction based on their experience that they think, will help the students. But in the textbook, this is worth bringing up. There's a page called Why People Work. And I asked the students that. Why do you think people work? And of course, a hand goes up and someone says, to make money. That's the response you get immediately. To make money. It's not the wrong answer, but it's not the only answer. So why do people work? If it's not just money, it's not just compensation. It's not just to survive. Well, the textbook breaks it down and they have six answers. And I'm not going to go over all six. I'm not going to bore you. I know you have other podcasts all queued up saying if Rosenberg gets boring in episode 13, his unlucky episode, then I'm getting out. Then I'm going to abort the mission real quick. But one of the big reasons why people work is to actually discover what you're good at, what you can accomplish, see what you will fail at. It's important to see what you're not good at as well. Gives your life meaning, gives your life significance, you feel fulfilled if you can actually attain your goals. This is why if you received a briefcase with $100 million in it, that most people would not just say, okay, I'm officially retired, just going on vacation for the rest of my life. Because if you go on vacation for the rest of your life, it sounds good, but it wouldn't even be vacation anymore. That's why weekends feel good. That goes back to my original point. The only way to enjoy something is don't do it so often. 
So if you had $100 million, it would be great. But a lot of people would still say, I want to work. I still want to work, have some structure. If you're ambitious and you feel motivated, work goes way beyond the paycheck. You actually get to see as a human, what are your capabilities? What are you competent to do? It's a way of measuring yourself against other people in society. To work is actually like a game show. See how many levels of success you could jump to. Level one, can you survive? Can you make rent? Can you buy a house? Meals, roof over your head, car, transportation. Level two, can you have some extra cash? Level three, can you feel good when you come home? Level four, can you support some people? Can you give a gift here or there? Level five, have you noticed that you've become an expert in your field? Have you mastered something? Have you committed to something? There's all these levels, the game show of life. And I think one of the great ways to see your own capabilities is to work. To work, 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 work. All right, I think I have OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, but not like full blown. I wonder if this is a disorder where there's different levels, different tiers. I think there are. I think there are. For some people, it's like true cleanliness, like Roseanne Barr. She doesn't shake people's hands. She's a true germaphobe, and that's a form of OCD. And other people just need order at all times. Like if anything is askew, they will notice it, and it will consume them. They'll harp on it, and they'll need it to change. But my form, I've noticed, is I count things, and they have to be even. So if I'm putting on deodorant, and I put it on, let's say, seven times on one armpit, it has to be seven on the other. Anybody else like this? Anybody else? I also count how many seconds I pee. Probably shouldn't have said that, but hey, I won't be deleting anything in this podcast. Sometimes I do get to a minute, which probably means I was holding it in. But back to counting. I do count things and they have to be even if they're on both sides of my body. Like Q-tip. How many times do you twirl it in that ear? That is the exact number I need to twirl it in the other ear. This sounds ridiculous. It's probably not OCD. I should probably investigate what's wrong with me instead of self-diagnosing. Self-diagnosing is a great thing to do on the internet, isn't it? Anybody like that activity? Or my fellow hypochondriacs? You just Google your symptoms and freak out for a little bit. Then email your doctor just to get the response. You're okay. What percentage of doctor replies are just like, you're okay? I bet deep down a lot of doctors, they're helpful. I like doctors, but they must think a large percentage of the general population are just a bunch of idiots. The internet has spawned a bunch of scared people. Like even right now as I'm recording, I have a throbbing headache, throbbing. And I've already taken some Advil, but I am tempted to Google throbbing headache. And at some point I'll find that that means I have a serious disease. Yeah, if you go to enough message boards, because that's where you really want to find the good stuff, message boards. Same thing with raising a kid. Every little ailment, every little moment, you want to go to a message board with anonymous other people in the general population writing about their experiences. I find that to be the best thing to do when you're in a bind. When you're worried about a medical issue, you don't want to go to WebMD. No, forget that. You want to go to a good old-fashioned message board with a lot of typos and acronyms from people all over America who are freaking out. It really calms the soul. Actually, I probably don't have OCD. I just figured that out right now. We thought it through. That's what the podcast is for. I explore my feelings, and then I get the results I hope to get. So there it is, folks. I don't have it. I mean, I'll Google it later, but I don't think I have it. I do have an obsession with variety, though, and I think this could be more relatable than uh, all of the other nonsense, probably not so relatable. 
I'm guessing. But this might be relatable. There are a few humans. Now follow me with this. There are a few humans who will buy shoes, realize that they like those shoes, and then when those shoes wear down, they will buy them again. There are a lot of people, too, who they see a movie, they like the movie, and they'll watch that movie again. That's normal, right? Some people say, oh, yeah, I've seen that movie four or five times. There are people who do this with drinks as well. They go to a bar. It's the same thing every time. Glass of Chardonnay. I'll have a Sierra Nevada. I'll have a Bombay Sapphire and Tonic. It's the same thing every time. Why? They know they like it. They know they like it. They go to a deli. I'll get the roast beef and cheddar on sourdough, everything on it. They know they like it, so they get it every time. Now, I assume this is a small percentage of the population because me, on the other hand, I would never buy the same pair of shoes twice, even if the first pair had already proven to be great shoes, comfortable, stylish. I loved them, but then they get retired forever. If I see a great movie, I am okay with never seeing that movie again. Ever. If I go to a deli, I'm usually going to get a different sandwich every single time. Let me have tuna and Monterey Jack. Next time, let me have corned beef and cheddar. Next time, let me have ham and cheese. Next time, let me have turkey avocado. I like everything. I don't have any go-to dishes. Every time I go to a restaurant, I want to try something new. Some people feel the opposite. Some people go to the restaurant, they go, Hey, Harvey, I'll have the usual. And Harvey, who's this fictional waiter I just brought up, Harvey goes to the kitchen and they say, hey, Tommy's here. He'll have the usual. And the chefs go, hey, Tommy's here. He'll have the usual. It kind of sounds charming to have a usual where everybody knows your name. Why am I singing the Cheers theme song? That'll make sense a little later in the podcast. You want to go where you can see the troubles, troubles, troubles are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name? The regulars. They have their regular menu items. But let me bring up my brother-in-law. He only drinks Captain and Diet Coke with a slice of lime. That's his drink. Captain Morgan spiced rum, Diet Coke, spice of lime. That's his order. He loves it. He knows he likes it. It's consistent. Anytime he's going to have a drink, he knows he will enjoy it. Me, on the other hand, the opposite. There's beer on tap. I want to know about every single beer on tap. And when I was visiting my sister's family in Colorado, he once asked me, why do you do that? Why do you take gambles, take risks with your orders every time? There's a chance that you will not like that drink. He goes, why don't you just find a beer that you like and stay with it? And to him, that made sense. To me, it sounded bizarre. But his logic is perfectly understood. His logic is, why leave your night to any risk? Why not just get the things you like? But my response, wait till you hear this. My response was simply, I'm always looking for the next best thing. So even if there's a beer I love, like Sierra Nevada, I'm not going to order that at every single restaurant. I want to find the next great pale ale and then discover it, tell my friends about it, and then never order it again. Not to say I don't have cravings for things I've had before, but I'm on this quest to find the next best thing when it comes to things we consume. Why would I watch a movie twice? Shouldn't I just find another new movie? Why would I order the same pair of shoes twice? Shouldn't I just find another pair of shoes that I've never seen before that blow my mind because they're so unique? So variety is the spice of life. It is. At least in my head, it's proven. There's no way I would want to live in the same house for the rest of my life, even if it was the greatest house. I'm like Gary Shandling. That's what they said about Gary Shandling in his documentary, that he had a great house, but he kept looking for the flaws. He's like, yeah, I kind of don't like the placement of that window. You know, that room, that seems haunted. 
you know, the door could be a little different. I don't ever expect to live in the perfect house. So knowing that, I want to live in many different places. When it comes to travel, I don't ever want to go to the same place twice. Even if I had the greatest trip ever to Fiji, 10 days in Fiji, beautiful Fiji. At the end of that trip, I would not say, man, I can't wait to come back. I'd say, now I want to find another place like Tahiti or the Bahamas or something. So that's just me. Relatable for anybody? Nope. All right, let me end this damn thing with a little movie review. I don't even think this is a review. This is just a hatchet job. Let me rip apart a movie that was nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. What is it, late April? I'm still doing my Academy Awards recap. This is a stale podcast, folks, but I appreciate you making it this far because you're probably wondering, where's he going? The Post? Nope, haven't seen it yet. The Darkest Hour? No, haven't seen it yet. And those are the two I probably would really enjoy. The Post, if you ever put Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep in the same movie, it's automatically good. I don't care what it's about. It's automatically good. Those are the two big dogs. Those are the two greatest actors today, and they're both in The Post, and I have to see it. Plus, it's a journalism movie, and I like journalism. Deep down, I feel like I have the soul of a journalist. Is this journalism, this podcast? Yeah, let's just say yes for now. And then The Darkest Hour, I just taught World War II taught about Britain and Winston Churchill, so I got to see Gary Oldman, who I believe won Best Actor. Did he? Now I forget. But yeah, it looks good. It looks really good. I have a throbbing headache. I'm working through it, folks. I I am. I am. I'm playing Hurt today. I'm not in street clothes on the bench. I am playing Hurt. But the movie I saw is called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This is the one I was most excited about. This cast has some of my faves. Francis McDormand, of course you think of Fargo. And yeah, I've been to Fargo. Yeah, I've been there. Just like my take on vacations. Yeah, I don't need to go back. But it was good. Maybe I do. Actually, I take that back. I have family who enjoys Fargo. I do want to go back. Not here to offend anybody. Peter Dinklage, he's in Three Billboards. I like him. Sam Rockwell, he's in Three Billboards. I like him. And then one of my all-time favorites, Woody Harrelson. He's in it as well. There you go. You're like, why was he singing the theme song to Cheers? Is it because he's delirious? Of course. Is it because he's dehydrated and sleep-deprived? Yup. But also because I knew I would be talking about Woody Harrelson. And that show never jumped the shark. Because when Coach left, and even Shelley Long left, Kirstie Alley and Woody Harrelson, they kept Cheers going. That was strong till the end, damn it. And Woody was great. And he can really act. He's been dynamite in everything he's ever done. Did you see him in True Detective? Did you see this with Matthew McConaughey? That was a strong performance in that HBO series. Plus, White Men Can't Jump, Billy Hoyle. I need a Billy Hoyle poster. The Stooky Brothers were chasing him. All right, I feel like this is an annoying podcast because I keep going on too many tangents. And you're probably like, how do you feel about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri? And I'll tell you right now, I thought it was fucking awful. Not just awful, but fucking awful. And I had a realization. The acting can still be very good in an awful movie. But the definition of a bad movie is when the credits roll at the end for you to at least have a feeling of closure, a feeling like the story was resolved in a certain way. I'm not saying happily ever after. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when the credits roll after a movie, For you to feel satisfied that you reached the end of the story that was being told. I don't feel that way at all. Zero of the characters were likable. Why would I care about the plight of any of these characters? The way it was written is they take you on such an emotional roller coaster. They try to, you know, depict a character who's unlikable. And then halfway through the movie, they try to switch it on you. 
and go, no, 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 now that person is someone you should like. Well, it's too late. You already established that person as a total asshole. Why would I now feel differently? The old switcheroo doesn't work for me. Once a character is established, that's how I feel about him or her. So Frances McDormand. I guess in a way I care about her because her daughter was murdered and raped. And that's why she puts up three billboards calling out the police department, calling out the town for not working hard enough to find the suspect, the culprit. They never find her. There's a spoiler. I should have said spoiler alert, but they never find the killer, the rapist. You think they do. At one point you go, oh, Sam Rockwell, he's got this figured out, but it turns out he didn't. So let me just go through the characters for a moment. Frances McDormand is the mother, and you want to care for her, but she's awful throughout the movie. She's not nice to anybody. Not saying she has to be nice, but there's nothing that pulls you in towards her to cheer for her, except for the fact that, of course, you'd love them to find the killer. But here's what bugs me. Sam Rockwell is a total low-life alcoholic, lazy bastard who lives with his mom, terrible cop, racist as well. Even throws a guy out the window. So borderline murderer in one scene, and then all of a sudden, things change, and they try to depict Sam Rockwell as a potential savior. He gets fired from the police force, and then he comes back and tries to solve the big crime, and you think at one point he's going to solve the big crime, but he doesn't. I would have written it a little differently. I would have written it where he does solve the big crime at the bar. He finds the killer, turns him in, roll the credits, happily ever after. Okay, I guess I do like happily ever after sometimes, even though this movie was so dark. This was so dark that there would be no happily ever after. But the worst thing is that Woody Harrelson's character, you know, he's the head of the police department, the police chief, the billboards say, hey, Chief Willoughby, why don't you do your job or something like that? Why don't you work harder? And they kind of paint a picture that it's a very inept police department because they never find the killer rapist. And then Woody Harrelson dies in the movie. He kills himself. And he writes letters to different characters where he's reading the letters, he's narrating his own letters after his death, and he's saying all these nice things, and I think the direction of the movie is where they try to make you like him. I don't like him. I don't like that he employed Sam Rockwell. I don't like that he never even got close to solving the crime. I don't really like how awful the cops were in that town, and he was the leader of it. That's why when they got a new police chief, I think that was the only likable character in the whole movie. The guy immediately takes the job and fires Sam Rockwell. All right, this review sucks. Just know that the movie's not worth seeing because the story goes nowhere and there's nothing likable about any of the characters and it's a flawed plot throughout. I'm now going to take more Advil because of this throbbing headache. My review of Three Billboards fell flat. Some of you might agree with some of that. Some of you fully disagree, but the acting is just fine. There's my takeaway. Acting can still be very good in a story that does nothing for you. Like The Shape of Water. The acting is probably just fine. Special effects are fine. A lot of things could be fine, but if the story falls flat, then fuck it. So I have not seen a great movie yet, but maybe the post or the darkest hour will change that. That is going to do it for episode 13, the unlucky episode. Number 14 will be better. Maybe I should have just named this 14 like elevators do, but you would know deep down it's 13, but I called it episode 14. All right, none of that matters. Follow me on Twitter if you want, at jrosenberg957. You can also leave a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for a new podcast, my buddy, coworker Jason Searle, has a new podcast. It's called One More Thing. Give it a whirl. All right, episode 13 in the books. My name is Josh. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>